Ray Bradbury holds a special place in my heart. In addition to having written some of my favorite short stories and one of my favorite novels, he was the subject of my first ever internet lesson plan back in 2002. It involved a visit to raybradbury.com and students looking up information and writing letters to the author, although there are probably emails now that I think about it. Now it seems like a silly thing to have gotten excited over, but it was over 20 years ago, and who knew? Actually, if it was back in 2002, it wouldn't be over 20 years ago. Guess I lied. Sorry. It was almost 20 years ago, and who knew what the internet would become? Well, actually, Ray Bradbury probably did. Greetings, and welcome to the Teaching ALA podcast, where this summer we combine my two favorite things, literature and summer vacation. Get ready for some literary quotes. Here we have a quote in part one, and I quote, (laughs) It's really fun. It'll be even more fun when we can afford to have the fourth wall installed. How long you figure before we save up and get the fourth wall torn out and a wall TV put in? It's only $2,000. This was Mildred uh, speaking to her husband. I tried to help a friend put together a budget once. Uh, he had massive credit card debt, no savings. I encouraged him to begin paying down his debt and create a savings program. He insisted it was impossible. He went over his expenses. He owned two giant TVs and paid nearly $150 a month on cable. This is a true story, by the way. I suggested he cut his cable bill by $50 and start paying off one of his credit cards. He refused. He bought another TV for his bedroom. His wife lost her job and their home went into foreclosure. Now he has his three TVs and a one-bedroom apartment. Bradbury was prophetic. People spending, you know, I know for our modern readers, our, our young scholars, the thought of a TV the size of a wall probably isn't that big of a stretch. But if you grew up in, I mean, this was written in 1954 when TVs were just little boxes. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I graduated high school in the 80s, and we had this little square TV. We had a 19-inch square TV, and we thought it was big, although I do remember uh, we struggled a bit financially, so our all the color schemes were off on our TV, so sometimes it made it hard watching sports, one the fact that we'd get wavy lines all over it. So the thought of a TV taking up the size of the wall or the thought of people having multiple large screen TVs was was really uh, strange in 1954 or whenever this was written. So something to keep in mind. Bradbury was prophetic. Now I'm amazed about how accurate Bradbury's vision of the future has turned out to be, not just with the giant TVs, but uh, his other scientific predictions, his social, more, I think even more, more alarming are his social predictions. Now, I have a quick lesson plan right now. I'm just going to share with you. I know it's summer, whatever, it's July, or no, it's June, whatever month it is, regarding Bradbury's vision of the future. But this is so easy that you really don't need to, you could probably even remember it. You're not, probably not writing lesson plans while at the beach or in the mountains. So you can, you know, bookmark this podcast. I still don't know how to bookmark podcasts, but you could probably save it. Most players have a save. Or you could just like my podcast and put it as like a favorite, and then you don't have to worry about looking it up. Anyhow, it's a simple two-column chart. Label the left column predictions in Fahrenheit 451. Label the right column how the prediction has or has not come true. If you go over to uh, ELACommonCoreLessonPlans.com, I have a list of things that have been invented since this novel was written or things that didn't exist. Do you know Saran Wrap didn't exist when this novel was written? Facebook, Amazon, that was decades away. He writes, uh, he writes about the, the thing that just blows my mind is, is ATMs. 1954, there was no such thing as an ATM. If you wanted money out of the bank, you had to walk into the bank when it was open, of course. I mean, I guess you could walk in the bank when it was closed. That would make you a bank robber. You had to actually walk inside the bank and withdraw money. And even in the 80s and into the 90s, 
that was the standard. I, I'm trying to remember the first time I saw an ATM. I'm from a small town in Ohio, so it, it and I moved away in 1989, and I don't remember ever seeing an ATM at that point. So the the money machines where you could just go in and put in a card and get out money was was well at the time science fiction. You had the Mildred would always put the, uh, the beetle in her ear, the little ear, the the ear earbuds, which is now Bluetooth. The thought of Bluetooth back again in 1954 was unheard, was was you know absurd. Even when I was growing up in the 80s, something like that. So just little things like that. Talk about the speed of cars, the overbearance of media. It's just everywhere. So these are some of the things you might want to discuss, might want to put in the left column of the chart. And then in the right column, how, how the prediction has come true. So we see. I, I think I got that mixed up. In the book, it talks about the Beatles in Mildred's ears. And then the prediction has come true with Bluetooth headphones. You probably have a pair of Bluetooth headphones, earbuds, Things like that. And since we're on the subject of lesson plans, over at ELACommonCoreLessonPlans.com, I combine most of the lesson plan units I've created into one PDF file. It's a big PDF file, by the way. It's like over 2,000 pages, I'll admit. But I made it available to you, my loyal listener. And even if you're not loyal, it's still available. Like you, you might be like telling your friends, this guy's an idiot right now, which would make you a disloyal listener. But that's okay. You can still take advantage of it. It contains complete unit plans for 33 short stories. 11 poetry units, all types of writing, three novels, two Shakespearean plays, and an epic poem. You could literally not have to create a lesson plan for the entire year and still not get through everything. Let's get back to the quote. Let's talk about Bradbury's vision of people becoming so engrossed in technology that they stop living life. I think we can all see signs of that in our world. I doubt, however, that Bradbury was a Luddite. I don't think anti-technology attitudes are wise nor realistic when it comes to our students. There are great things about the internet and other technological breakthroughs. I mean, you get to listen to this podcast. Did you know, for example, that you can go online and enroll in a free lesson planning video course created by me? Now I'm going to take this time to share with you something I saw on RayBradbury.com just now. Bradbury's writing life was sparked by an encounter with a carnival magician, Mr. Electrico, in 1932. At the end of Electrico's performance, he reached out to the 12-year-old Bradbury, touched him with his energy-charged sword, and commanded, Live forever! Bradbury later said, I decided that was the greatest idea I had ever heard. I started writing every day. I never stopped. If it weren't for the internet, I would not have known that little fact. Thank you, internet, and thank you, RayBradbury.com, and thank you for listening and subscribing and giving this podcast a like. Like me, please like me, I'm begging you. Thanks for listening to the Teaching ELA Podcast. I talked last episode about my first ever internet lesson plan involving Ray Bradbury and RayBradbury.com. Here's something I learned from RayBradbury.com just now. Not only was Bradbury highly creative with language, he also was an exceptional visual artist. He would use the basement office as his studio, doodling, sketching, and painting. He especially loved to draw devil faces, pumpkins, cats, and monsters, and even painted a Halloween tree. After watching It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown on Halloween with his daughters, he was thoroughly disappointed by the TV show's handling of his favorite holiday. So Bradbury remembered his earlier Halloween tree painting and decided to write his own history of Halloween around this concept. The Halloween tree became one of his best-known works, which is odd because I'd never heard of it before. Anyway, today's literary quote comes from Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 and has nothing to do with Halloween. Bradbury foresaw a future where outdoors and exercise were an anomaly. I really don't see that. At least where I live. He also saw a future that involved people always on the go, never taking the time to enjoy life. That I do see. 
I see people so busy, busy that they don't appreciate or enjoy what it is they have. They're always stressed out, always on the go. Uh, so I think that's, I, I, you know, it was probably prevalent back in the 1950s too. Anyhow, here's a quote. White blurs are houses, brown blurs are cows. My uncle drove slowly on a highway once. He drove 40 miles an hour and they jailed him for two days, end quote. You know what? If you're driving 40 miles an hour on the, on the highway and I'm trying to get somewhere, I'm glad they put him in jail. Anyway, Clarice tells Montag about her strange family, the one that actually converses with each other and enjoys nature. This shows just how shallow Montag's society has become. Nobody thinks, one of many Bradbury's predictions that have come true. Let me, let me state that in a more understandable way. In Bradbury's society, nobody thinks. And I think this is one of Bradbury's predictions that have come true. For example, instead of taking the time to actually read Fahrenheit 40, Fahrenheit 45.1, no, Fahrenheit 451, much better than Fahrenheit 45.1 which is the temperature that's really cold, I guess. But instead of reading this novel, I've had students go online looking for spark notes and just reading a summary of it. Have you ever had that? I know it's, it's, it's astounding. And I never did that when I was in school, only because we didn't have the internet. But I do remember going to the mall and buying Cliff's notes for the Scarlet Letter. Bradbury's vision takes a dark turn with his look at depression and mental illness. Quote, they had this machine. They had two machines, really. One of them slid down into your stomach like a black cobra down an echoing well, looking for all the old water and the old time gathered there. Bradbury uses figurative language several times in the novel to give machines animal-like qualities. Here we have a simile, a stomach pump being compared to a snake. The snakes are here to revive Montag's wife who has attempted suicide again. Suicides are apparently popular in Montag society because the quote-unquote doctors coming in to pump her stomach treat this as a routine procedure. You know, one theme in Bradbury's writing that shows up again and again and again and again is how technological innovation does not lead to increased happiness. This might be a relevant topic to discuss in your class today. Well, not today since it's summer. <laughs> but if you're listening to this in like September, could be. You, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Now, I talked last episode about how amazed I am with Bradbury's vision of the future, how accurate it is, his vision that includes social and scientific predictions. And I'm also amazed at how well Bradbury uses figurative language. It's something he's he's not really given the credit for. I mean, he's given credit for being one of the greatest science fiction writers, but his power of description is fantastic. If you've ever read A Sound of Thunder, for example, you'll, you'll be amazed at his description of the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Or if you've read The Velt, his description of The Velt in the virtual reality is amazing. And we have great descriptions here in Fahrenheit 451. He uses figurative language uh, incredibly well. So again, if you're, you know, a quick lesson, you want to just, again, save this, come back to it when school starts, label the left column examples of figurative language, label the right column explanation. You could even have a third column which uh, mentions type of figurative language. And since we're on the subject of lesson plans, over at ELACommonCoreLessonPlans.com, I combine most of the lesson plan units I've created into one gigantic PDF file made it available to all my listeners, the loyal and disloyal ones. We've got complete units. You've heard this before. I'm going to move on and move back, I should say, to RayBradbury.com. Another fun fact from RayBradbury.com. In February 1924, Bradbury saw his first film at age three when his mother took him to see Lon Chaney in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Two years later, he was back to see the actor's next release, The Phantom of the Opera, twice, once with his mother and again with his brother, Skip. These pictures began his lifelong love affair with cinema. 
He often watched the same movie multiple times. In 1940, he watched Disney's Fantasia more times than he could remember. His favorite Hollywood films came from almost every genre, King Kong, Citizen Kane, Singing in the Rain, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. While the animation and silent films he'd seen as a child held a special place in his heart for the rest of his life. He also did. A, he also had a Ray, Bad, Ray Bradbury Theater. It was a television show in Canada. I believe it was 1989. I think it only lasted one or two seasons. Anyways, if you go to YouTube and type in Ray Bradbury Theater, all his shows come up, including The Velt uh, and A Sound of Thunder. We mentioned Bradbury was inspired by, by, by his movie. So, so what are we going to say or read or teach in our classroom that will impact the next Ray Bradbury? Okay, that was cheesy, but you get the point, right? You're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. That's what I'm talking about. I've really been uh, searching this RayBradbury.com website. It's so much better now than it was 20 years ago. Go figure. Here's something I learned just now. Even after his kids grew older and no longer thought it was cool to go trick-or-treating, Bradbury still dressed up for the holiday and enjoyed trick-or-treating all the same. He owned a number of Halloween ties. In later years, he had a special orange one made that he wore year-round with a white-collared shirt, white sneakers, white socks pulled up to his shins, white shorts, and a white windbreaker. Well, that's fascinating. Today's literary quote comes from Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 and has nothing to do with Halloween. I've mentioned in several Bradbury podcast episodes that his ability to see society and science in the future is mind-blowing. I'll share a few more quotes from Fahrenheit 451 to support my opinion. Quote, don't step on the toes of the dog lovers, the cat lovers, doctors, lawyers, merchant chiefs, Mormons, Baptists, Unitarians, second-generation Chinese, Swedes, Italians, Germans, Texans, Brooklynites, Irishmen, people from Oregon or Mexico. The bigger your market, Montag, the less you handle controversy. End quote. So Beattie explains to Montag the origins of banned books. This, however, is more of an authorial intrusion. I would say Bradbury's prediction has come true in the form of political correctness gone amok and the influence of special interest groups in politics. But I don't want to offend anybody, so I won't say that. In fact, I'll choose to be offended since I qualify for three of the groups mentioned in that quotation. On to our next quote, the train radio vomited upon Montag, end quote. It's a short one. It's great personification. If you don't think this prediction has come true, turn on your car radio on the way to school or work and count how many morning DJs tell fart jokes. We can't go anywhere without some background noise, the grocery store, the airport, the grocery store in the airport. Even on public streets and public transportation, we are constantly bombarded by advertisements or new programs. You can't even pump gas anymore without some news anchor preaching to you. And Bradbury uh, d- talked a lot in his writing, or his writing showed a lot about where media is taking over. And again, this was written in the 1950s when the only media was radio and TV. But it, it appears that R- Bradbury foresaw how TV and other electronics would dominate our free time. Let's take a look at another quote from the second section of the book, quote, but who has ever torn himself from the claw that encloses you when you drop a seed in a TV parlor? It grows you any shape it wishes, end quote. Now, I plunk the children in, see another quote that goes with it. I plunk the children in school nine days out of 10. I put up with them when they come home three days a month. It's not bad at all. You heave them into the parlor and turn the switch. It's like washing clothes, stuff laundry in and slam the lid. They just as soon kick as kiss me. Thank gosh I can kick back. Bradbury predicts a future where TV influences and shapes individuals. 
I wonder what Barney would say about that. I'm glad we don't live in a world where TV is used as a babysitter, right? And families no longer speak to each other. That'd be terrible. That Ray Bradbury sure was crazy. The second quote contains a great simile comparing raising children to a chore devoid of love or feeling. We probably have some of those children in our classes. Aren't getting a lot of love elsewhere, not getting a lot of attention uh, attention elsewhere. Just remember that. Now I'm amazed again how accurate Bradbury's vision of the future has turned out to be. I talked about this lesson plan I'm going to talk to you about now. I I talked about it a few episodes ago, but just in case you weren't around or you weren't reminded, it's a two-column chart. Again, it's summer. You're not teaching nothing, but maybe if I give you the same lesson plan over and over, you'll remember it when it's time to teach. And you can use this for any science fiction, short story, novel, poem that you wish. Two-column chart, label the left column predictions in Fahrenheit 451 or whatever work you're reading. Label the right column how that prediction has come true. And since we're on the subject of lesson plans, you may not be writing lesson plans. You don't have to write lesson plans in the summer to prepare for the next school year. You can just go to elacommoncorelessonplans.com or uh, over there, I combine most of the lesson plan units I've created so you can get a year's worth before school even starts. Or I also have individual units if you know what you're teaching next year. Head on over, find some good unit plans over at elacommoncorelessonplans.com. Let's get back to Ray Bradbury. Dot com and his vision of techno and Bradbury's vision of technology. In 1932, Bradbury received a toy dial typewriter for Christmas. Five years later, he bought his first real typewriter for ten dollars. Despite his forecast of some of the great technological developments of the 20th and 21st centuries, the typewriter remained one of the few innovations Bradbury was really comfortable with. In Fahrenheit 451, in a number of short stories. He predicted radio telephone ear thimbles, what we today call Bluetooth headsets and ear pods, which he depicted as cacophonous, isolating, and socially disastrous. He never used a computer, and in 2009, he described the Internet as largely a waste of time. You know, if it's such a waste of time, then why did I find this information on the Internet? In your face, Ray. He does make a good point, though. Kids walking around all day with headphones on is isolating. In addition, our students, and let's be honest, probably us, Probably we use the internet and other technology as a cover-up for something else. We're trying to cover up a negative emotion, perhaps. Maybe we're just bored, and instead of finding something constructive to do, we scroll insta-chat. I'm obviously not anti-internet, since I did create the greatest website in the known history of humankind in one of the top three podcasts ever made. In fact, I dare say that if Bradbury had come across my website, elacommoncorelessonplans.com, he would change his tune about the internet being a waste of time. I'll end this with three suggestions to help make the internet not a waste of time. Number one, be intentional. If you get on the internet to get information, then get that information. Set a timer if you must. If you got on the internet to figure out how to change the spark plugs on a 2003 Chevy Malibu and realize you spent the last 45 minutes watching cats chase yarn or watching reality TV from Australia, you probably weren't as intentional as you need to be. Number two, set time limits or time parameters. If you want to check social media or watch YouTube, that's none of my business or anyone else's business. I've noticed that if I give myself a time frame for it, that I waste a lot less time though. And three, don't make your phone so accessible. You don't have to do, they're they're like dopamine, dopamine tablets in your pocket sometimes. You don't have to do anything extravagant. Just put your phone in a drawer or on the table across the room. I've had my phone uh, sitting next to the window. That's mainly to get uh, cell phone reception. But I notice it's been over there all day. And even though I've reached into my pocket to uh, use it like five or six times, I didn't bother to walk the, seriously, it's like six feet away from me right now. So it must not have been that important, right? And I get notifications on my watch. 
I should turn those off. You know what? I'm such a hypocrite. Anyhow, the point here is the initial impulse to grab your phone for no definite reason won't kill an hour of your life. I'd love to talk more, but I've scheduled YouTube soccer highlights and marble races for the next half hour. So I'll hear from, well, I won't hear from you. (laughs) You'll hear from me, though. You know, I keep talking about my first ever internet lesson plan involving Ray Bradbury and RayBradbury.com, and I just can't stop reading some of the stuff on there. So here's what I learned just now. Bradbury never lost his childlike sense of play, fun, and expressiveness. His grandchildren remember him as having more toys than they did. Toy ray guns, robots, stuffed dinosaurs, oversized stuffed animals of Rocky and Bullwinkle lounging in cushioned chairs, and even a head floating in a glass jar, courtesy of Alfred Hitchcock. His final home had wall-to-wall shelves filled with books as well as art, movies, TV, props, and trinkets from his travels to Mexico. Each Christmas, Bradbury asked his wife to give him toys instead of any other gifts. One of his granddaughters described his home and office as a riot of activity with junk everywhere, while a lifelong friend and colleague said, When I think of Ray, I think of his house overflowing with books, papers, toys, and cats. Somehow a physical embodiment of a cross-section of the American brain. Well, today's literary quote has nothing to do with toys. But if you've ever watched the Ray Bradbury Theater on YouTube, it was a Canadian uh, television program, uh, you kind of see his room has got the dinosaurs and all that on it. Anyhow, today's quote has nothing to do with animals, toys, or dinosaurs, I don't think, but it might. It's a mind-blowing ability. Today, I want to switch gears and talk about how the modern human deals with unwanted emotions. This is something that Bradbury nails in Fahrenheit 451. This quote that I'm about to read takes place in the Montag living room, which, of course, you know, has three giant wall TVs, but not four because they're saving up for it. Mildred has invited over some guests, and Montag's getting a little tired of them. He says, and I quote, Montag fixed his eyes upon her quietly. Go home and think of your first husband divorced and your second husband killed in a jet and your third husband blowing his brains out. Go home and think of the dozen abortions you've had. Go home and think of that and your damn cesarean sections too and your children who hate your guts. Go home and think how it all happened and what did you ever do to stop it? Go home, go home! before I knock you down and kick you out the door, end quote. Wow, straight fire right there. You know, nothing ends a fine night of socializing faster than to go home and think of your dead husband and your dozen abortions blast. I wouldn't recommend this line at your next dinner party. And then he, and he threatens, threatens to knock, knock the dinner guests down and kick him out the door. Not exactly in a partying mood. We see here that Mildred's friend has gone through some difficulties in her past at Montag. Doesn't mind bringing up. And although Montag's response lacks a little bit of sensitivity, he is onto something. In this novel, people don't want to think of things that make them sad or angry or anxious or to feel anything negative. And in order to avoid these emotions, these futuristic people distract themselves with giant TVs or music or whatever distraction they can find. This is an accurate description, perhaps, of how technology, food, drugs, etc. are used today. When we are feeling discomfort or we're upset, Do we just turn on the TV and binge watch our favorite reality TV show or perhaps scroll mindlessly on Facebook? Or my favorite, my personal favorite, eat a jar of peanut butter. It's my favorite buffering activity. It seems that our buffering activities cause much more damage than simply focusing on our emotions. So maybe we're not all that different than Mildred's friends. You know I'm amazed at how accurate Bradbury's vision of the future has turned out to be. But I want to dive a little deeper and talk about symbolism in the novel right now. You can, of course, create your lesson plan involving symbolism with a chart. <laughs> I know, what a shock, huh? I'm going to talk about a chart. Of course, you're not, you know, I might do lesson plans now in summer. It's a simple three-column chart. Left column, symbols. 
middle column specific example, right column interpretation of symbol. Now, because this because the this particular symbol related to today's quote, I want to talk about mirrors, or more specifically, Granger wants to talk about mirrors. Granger suggests they build a giant mirror factory and take a look at themselves, which means he's either really vain or he's commenting on the importance of self-understanding. Clarice is also compared to a mirror for helping Montag see himself. The intellectual Granger is probably familiar with Julius Caesar, in which Brutus is counseled by Cassius to see himself as he is. Other symbols in the novel include the titles of each section, blood, fire, and the phoenix, and since we're on the subject of lesson plans, over at ELA Common Core Lesson Plans, I mean, really, you're probably not going to feel like writing lesson plans, but you do have that nagging feeling that, well, I need to get prepared for the school year, but I just don't feel like writing lesson plans. Don't worry, I've written them for you. I combine most of the lesson plan units I've created into one PDF file and have made it available to you. They're in the show notes. The link's in the show notes. Or just go to ELACommonCoreLessonPlans.com, click that green button at the top. Now, who knows how green it's going to be by the time you listen to this, if you're listening to this in the future. The the uh, document contains complete units, 33 short stories, 11 poetry units, all types of writing, three novels, two plays, and the Odyssey. You could literally not have to create a lesson plan next year. Let's get back to RayBradbury.com and his vision of social change. He was the people's champion. Bradbury would often speak enthusiastically about education, libraries, urban living, and the importance of freedom. He developed a passion for city planning and participated in the development of Disney World's experimental community of tomorrow, we know as it as Epcot, in Orlando, and the Horton Plaza Shopping Center in San Diego, California. He wanted cities to be recreated to be better for everyone, not just for the elite. Bradbury always wanted to be part of the solution, not the problem. He also spoke out on public issues such as the decision for Los Angeles prioritize freeways over public transit. He always aimed to engage and inspire. I honestly don't know which side he took on the freeway versus public transportation argument. I'm guessing he was for public transportation, but wouldn't that lessen one's freedom to move about? Of course, the freeway system in Southern California is usually fairly crowded. Do you remember Carmageddon? When was that? It's like 2010 where they had to close down like the 405 and the 105 and the something like that. And everyone was expecting this. They called it Carmageddon, which for, my, for I'm thinking Carmageddon was that's one of the most creative names the news has ever come up with. Turns out Carmageddon didn't really happen. Enough people decided not to travel that day. Good for them. Good for them. Thanks for listening to the Teaching ELA podcast. For more teacher-ready, student-ready lesson plans, head on over to ELACommonCoreLessonPlans.com. That's ELACommonCoreLessonPlans.com, where we have hundreds of lesson plans and handouts that are ready to use right now. And as always, if this podcast has helped you thrive in the classroom, we'd appreciate a like and a review. 